Hey there, conductors. If you've ever felt that you're not quite sure what to do next when you're studying a score, maybe you don't even know where to start with a difficult piece. Maybe you study one piece too much and then you realize at the first rehearsal that you don't know another one well enough. Or maybe you're a new conductor and you don't know what score study is. I'm excited to share that I'm finally publishing and sharing my score study checklist. I've been refining this for 12 years now, and I'm so excited to share it. It is going to walk you through my structure, my process to make sure that I learn every score that I need to learn well enough and so that nothing falls through the cracks. So it covers everything that you need to know. There's a link in the show notes. Go ahead and click it, sign up, and you'll get that score study checklist sent right to your email. You'll also get access to an eight-minute video of me explaining what each section is and how I use it to organize all the music that I need to learn. It's only eight minutes, so it's not going to take you a whole hour to learn how to study better, how to put up a process for your score study and how to make sure that nothing is falling through the cracks. So again, click the link in the show notes, and I hope to see you soon. Now, please enjoy this episode of Podium Time. Hey there, and welcome to the Podium Time podcast. We are so thrilled to be starting this season of Building Back Audiences and to be joined today by the one and only Aubrey Bergauer. (laughs) Aubrey, thank you so much for being here. Oh, you're very welcome, Jeremy. Could you give us a really quick overview of who you are and what you do in the orchestra world? Sure. My entire career has been in arts management. That is a goal I've had since high school, which already puts me, I think, in this weird bucket because so many of us do not decide in high school that we want to go into arts management. So many of us don't even know that's a job then, but that's that's me. But played an instrument seriously growing up as well and knew I wanted to put that love of music together with the business side. So fast forward, because it's been a number of years now, and the very quick resume is Seattle Symphony and Fundraising, the Seattle Opera and Marketing, the Bumbershoot Music and Arts Festival, hired in as head of marketing, then promoted to number two over all the revenue streams there. And then the California Symphony as executive director, that's how a lot of people know me. And for the last three years now, I can't even believe it's been three years, but I've been trying to make a bigger impact beyond one organization. So more consulting, speaking gigs, things like that, really trying to work on uh, sharing the strategies that have proven successful, not just at California Symphony, even though that's where a lot of people know my work from, but those other organizations prior to that as well. And so you're doing doing a lot of writing and, and consulting now, is that right, and teaching? Yes, all of the above. Check, check, check. You got it. (laughs) Yeah. And so today we're going to be talking about your work and building back audiences, like what that what that means. I think a lot of people say that, but we're not really sure what that means or how to go about doing it. Let's let's talk about audiences first. And you you and I have talked about this um, before, is that audiences is not like getting our old audiences back because that wasn't working like super, super well in the past. It means bringing new people in and then making sure they come back. Um, so could you could you talk about what building back audiences means to you or how, how you would define that goal? Yeah, I think you nailed it. I'm going to repeat a lot of that right back to you. So and expound on it just a little bit as you asked. So as you said, as so many of us know, we have not recovered to pre-pandemic audience levels. The latest national stat I've heard is that most orchestras, ensembles are at 60 to 70% of pre-pandemic levels. But as you also said so accurately, Jeremy, is 
I mean, that baseline wasn't great to begin with, though. So uh, let's unpack that a bit. Pre-pandemic, and this comes straight from the League of American Orchestras, 90% of first-time attendees never come back again. And so we say, as an industry, we need new audiences. We need younger audiences. We say that today, too, for sure. And it's not that that's not true, but to unpack it, statistic like that shows that no we're actually kind of okay at getting people to come we're just not good at getting them to come back again and so when 90 percent, nine out of ten people who give us a try say no thanks i'm done that's a really big churn issue so you combine that if that's the baseline and then now we're you know only at 60 to 70 percent of pre-pandemic levels you know this is just it's not great i am a firm believer in bucking trends but those trends will persist unless we change the way we do things. Mm-hmm. And if any department, I think, thinks that their marketing budget is too high for getting people in, if you get somebody to come back, then without having to market to them because they become a loyal a loyal patron and they have a good enough time, that's what we hope for with our subscribers. But that's such a high bar to set to only focus yeah. on. I don't think we have to only focus on retention, but you kind of just said it. If an organization is has limited funds, which, hello, basically all of us, no matter how big or how small we are, that's usually true. Um, then, yeah, focusing or shifting that money to retention or at least some of it to retention over acquisition all the time really can help us. And this is true for any brand anywhere is that retention, loyalty it, it prevails in terms of a strategy and you know, every other industry and true in our industry too, is that it is cheaper to get somebody to come back than to get somebody to come for the first time. So that all that then flows into the membership economy, subscription economy that's so prominent everywhere else. I think there's reasons why subscriptions are different and a challenge for us. But anyways, I think I think you totally got it retention over acquisition when we have to make budget choices for sure. And so what um what is it that you found is causing only 10% of people to come back? It boils down to two things. One is this retention issue. Sometimes they don't come back because they're not invited to come back or the invitation is come back and make a donation, come back and buy a subscription where it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. I just went once, you know? Um, So there's that whole issue of just asking too much too soon. But the other big issue I have learned in my work, and this has now been repeated at multiple different organizations in the consulting role, is that people don't feel welcome. They don't feel like they belong. And what do I mean by that? That's everything from they don't know. Uh, they don't know the words we use, and, and whether that's in the program book, or they don't even always know the names of the instruments in the orchestra. This was mind blowing for me, you know, as somebody who cannot remember not knowing the names of the instruments in the orchestra, right? So things like that. Uh, sometimes just the words we use feel very intimidating. Um, these unspoken expectations, like, okay, I guess maybe we're still having the conversation on when to applaud or not, but it makes a difference when somebody is having such an emotional reaction that it bursts out of them after the first movement and applause, and then they get shushed or the dagger eyes from the people around them, like, 
yeah, I don't want to come back to an experience like that either. Like shaming, not going to work to get people to come back. Right. So, you know, it's just a lot of things like that where we realize, wow, it's actually very, very intimidating, very unwelcoming. Uh, I'm painting with a very broad brush, but again, I've seen these results reproduced now at multiple organizations and it's always themes like that that emerge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I heard somebody recently say that it's not there's nothing wrong with classical music. The problem is with classical music concerts. And that's one of the things that I love about what you did with Orchestra X um, is that it's not just about going to the concert. It's the whole experience of everything before you go to the concert and learning about like what the website's like and how easy it is to use. And that's, you know, we always focus on the concert and only the concert, but just parking is part of the concert. My, my first composition teacher would always say like the concert starts when you walk in the door, not when the concert actually starts. And so I've always Mm -hmm. thought of, yeah, like what's parking like? There was a concert in Denver I didn't want to go to because I just did not want to deal with parking. It just wasn't worth it to me. That's the only thing in my head that I was worried about. And if you're thinking that as somebody who eats, sleeps, breathes this, then just imagine, of course, this like frustration is shared among other people as well. I mean, of course, none of us want to deal with parking, right? And that reminded me too, yeah, it was things like also we heard just incredible apprehension about what to wear, which I guess we're still having that conversation too. But but I don't mean, I don't mean it to be like, um, I mean, I'm saying it kind of snarky right now, but I, and so I'm sorry for that. But the idea is not like, oh, wear whatever you want, it's fine. Obviously it's fine. It's that they and they didn't want to dress down. It wasn't that either. It was that they were like, I just want to fit in and show up appropriate, whether that's, you know, dressed to the nines because it's my date night out or like, it's no, it's not that fancy. It is more casual. They were like, I just want to know. And like, I just remember feeling like feeding off of their anxiety around it. And so to the point you were just making that this experience starts way before a note of music is ever played, you know, we're talking days in advance here that they're feeling stress, they're feeling concern, anxiety, all these emotions associated with the experience we're trying to provide before the experience even ever truly began. Way, way right? before. Except it has begun. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah, there's so much about the, the experience surrounding the product. Yeah. Yeah. And to, to speak to what people wear to concerts, just because that's such such a thing. And, and you found that it was for like almost everybody, like a point of stress. That's not something that we enforce, but that's a perception and a worry that they have. And so if we want people to not worry about it, we have to, we have to get rid of that fear. We have to meet it somewhere. That's right. That's exactly right. And what I learned to summarize all of that is like setting expectations in advance Mm -hmm. is what's so necessary. People want information. And that goes right back to what are we putting in our websites? What are we putting in the pre-performance email? But honestly, website is where they're looking way before they even buy the ticket. So it really does need to be there. Um, But yeah, it's just like this quote unquote, very basic information where it's like, it's not basic to them because they don't know it. So well, and it's hard for us to see it because we're insiders and we don't even know what it's like to be an outsider. And right. most people coming to the symphony, especially the ones coming for the first time, like you said, the the like social protocols, like they don't know those unspoken rules. That's right. Exactly. Let's segue into programming. Um, you know, I think a lot of people jump to the extreme of, we'll either just have Pops concerts and do Harry Potter and John Williams 
and we'll use that to pay for the concerts that aren't as successful. Can we find maybe maybe the middle ground or, or how can we try to bring people in and then make sure they, they come back? I know there's no easy answer to that. I don't know if this is an easy answer, but I have two big tenets of programming I like to share. And the first is just as you said, it's not once and done. What do I mean by that? Like these one-off concerts, the Harry Potters, the John Williams, the culturally specific concerts, the Dia de los Muertos concerts, the Chinese New Year concerts, those kind of thing. We tend to program in silos like that. And those concerts sell, make no mistake about it. We know they do. But all of those same stats are true. Those people who come to those concerts aren't coming back to other things, or at least nine out of 10 of them aren't. And so this siloed programming is not serving us. So instead, I am a huge fan and not just personal fan, but have seen the data to support this, that when we hold the belief that it is all good music, it is all worth performing, throughout the season, that is a much stronger winning formula. So yes, let's program our, I don't know, Chinese composers, not just a Chinese New Year. Let's program them throughout the season. Same thing with our Latinx composers, right? Same thing with Harry Potter. John Williams, we tend to work in a little bit more sometimes. What if there, I don't know, I'm not a huge Harry Potter fan. I know I'm the only one on the planet, but is there like a piece that could go in the overture slot and then the Beethoven concerto goes in the middle? Like, I hope I don't sound too blasphemous by saying this, but like people would come for that. Mm-hmm. And and I've seen that play out in the numbers. So it's all good music. It's not that one is pops or less than or whatever. Like why, why have that attitude? That just seems so antiquated to me. So anyways, program throughout, it's all good music. We want representation throughout and all different definitions of that word. Uh, so let's do that. Uh, within that, I would say a sub- piece of advice is there is no shame in programming the blockbuster work warhorse that we know will sell with something that is less well known. So if we need to program the Beethoven symphony or the Brahms or whatever, next to a piece that as a conductor, you feel very passionate about, do it. There is no shame in the game. And then you get to speak from the podium about why that piece is interesting to you and why it matters. And then all these things we've talked about start layering up to me to like actually work as a strategy for us. So, okay, that's point one on programming. The second point I'll say is when you program matters. So this now really gets into the strategy of marketing. Don't program all your new music pieces right before subscription renewals go out. Just don't do it. (laughs) Program the concert that is going to be a total blockbuster. Program that right before subscriptions go out. If there's a big donation campaign, I don't know if it's fiscal year end or something like that. Like, what are you going to end the season with that everybody just feels all the feels and You know, we know those pieces and that they do that. So again, no shame in the game when you program matters. So hopefully that's a little bit of how and when, you know, combined in all this advice. All of these things are not meant to constrain us. They are meant to liberate us. The goal is to create a place where people say, I have a good time there. I feel like I learn something every time I go. I feel like it's welcoming. Like if people feel all of these things and that's the combination again of experience plus what they've heard on stage, including the conductor's role and all of that and learn something. It wasn't elite. What that does is it liberates us in terms of programming because now we're not selling Rachmaninoff. We're selling 
I enjoy myself every time I go. And when that's yeah. what we're selling, oh, wow, wow, that opens things up for us. Artistically, mm -hmm. it opens things up for us. Yeah, changing that culture from I'm going to this concert to see this composer to I'm going to this orchestra because I know I'm going to have a great time exactly. and I can trust that whatever they're going to do. I trust them. Yes, a hundred percent. So one, th one thing kind of similar to this that I've been thinking and feeling and wanting to write more about recently is the idea that our concerts should be more than just the music on our concerts. And we may have, we may have touched this earlier, but I'm always trying to explore ways to make the concert even just visually more interesting for the orchestra I work with, we have at our pops concert venue, we have these two big screens on the side and we can show clips of the orchestra, but we'll also show a still from the movie that we're doing the score from, or we'll follow the movie. And I think that just adds so much. And we, we almost never talk about, you know, what if we're doing this piece based on a poem? Why don't we have somebody come out and read the poem? Yes, love it. I think I think what is so wonderful about our product, about orchestral music, is that it is used in so many different ways, places, so many different analogies. Um, it really does intersect with a lot of different types of art and a lot of different places and culture. And so that is in our corner. And I think we are under tapping that largely. So yes, totally to work those things in, I think are great. And if I could change one production element or add one production element to concerts, it would be IMAG screens. If we could add those to our concerts, I think that would be the one change. Like if I had only one wish for production elements, I think I would do that because to be able to see performers up close totally changes things. And that's slightly different than what you were saying of, but, but same vein of like, yeah, let's show photos of the performers or the, or a still from the movie where this was used. Like, yeah, whatever it is, do it. Cause it enhances what we're doing, not takes away from it. Mm -hmm. Well, and what we, we do do that also, we, we get a really good close up of the soloist because most people can't, can't see the details of their face and their hands. They may sit on the left side of the hall for the, for the, to see the piano keys, but they can't, see what's going on on the face. Um, and I realized that when we got, we were doing our live stream concerts for a year and the, the feedback we kept getting was, I want more close-ups of the players. There are too many wide shots. We are from different angles, but people really wanted to be close up like the Berlin Phil does in their, in their virtual concerts. Like that is, that is a view that you don't normally get unless you're standing on the stage and nobody's standing on the stage during a concert. That's right. This is reminding me of a story I heard somebody share. They were trying to introduce, they were inviting friends to a concert to see Long Long. And so they were trying to like prime their non-musical friends in advance about why Long Long is so amazing. And she showed this YouTube video of him playing and their takeaway was, oh my gosh, his hands are blurry. He is moving so fast, his hands are blurry. This goes right back to right back to the top of everything we were saying. Like that was their level. And like it was enough for them to know, you know, they're not saying, wow, his technicality and his right hand, left, you know, like no, 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 no. But it was enough for them to see that he was masterful. Mm -hmm. They were blurry. And like, great, fine. So now they're long, long fans and they want to go see him in concert. So if that's what we can provide, close-ups the show the beat of sweat on their brow or, you know, whatever it is like, yeah, let's do that. Mm -hmm. Well, or we're, again, we're doing a Beethoven concert this week and the bass parts in a Beethoven symphony are incredible. 
they're crazy. And so I'm going to make sure that our cameras get a close up of one of the crazy bass licks in in one of the movements because I mean just I mean I bet those hands are blurry on the camera too. Exactly. And I nobody in the audience is going to yeah. is going to see that unless you unless you bring it to the fore and put it on a big screen. Yeah, and what you're saying right now is so important. Like you as the conductor are uniquely qualified to be informing these kinds of production camera decisions when uh, when we are using cameras in our performances. And so like, I guarantee not everybody on staff, maybe very few, maybe no people on staff are like, oh, we got to get the bass players because that bass part is really outrageous. Like, <laughs> I wouldn't know that. So um, anyways, conductors just feel so empowered to be like, oh, you know what's cool? The double bass part. Like, yeah. do that. Speak up for sure, which you have. So I think yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, and and nobody knows the music as closely as we do exactly. and you know maybe exactly. the program note writer will know the stories and the other affiliations behind the music or some of the musicians but nobody in the audience is going to know that unless we bring them from outsiders to insiders unless we tell them these things that like beethoven wasn't just deaf he like basically wrote a suicide note at before the third symphony like that's that's something that they don't know unless we've told them that's right that's yeah. right I really wanted, we were talking about hiring an intern, and I really wanted to try and find an intern who wasn't already a musician so that I could send them to go read program notes and like, okay, find the stories that just really grip you. Like find the things that we are not seeing that are interesting to you. More and more, I think program notes, though here a controversial statement <laughs> alert, maybe should not be written by a musicologist. I don't know. That's a pretty, yeah. that's a pretty controversial statement. So maybe I don't fully believe that, but just this idea of how do we make it? Mm -hmm. My wife is a, is a musician. She's a music therapist now, so she's not into the classical music side of it, but um, you know, she never really liked it until I started telling her like the stories of the composers and their lives. Like until we started talking about Brahms and Schumann and Clara, or until we started talking about like Beethoven and Mozart as people. I mean, like people go watch Amadeus and suddenly they have this portrait and the music means something because they have a personality to put onto it. And I think that's so missing from the way that we talk about music. Totally. And I will just, if I can add one more story to yeah. this, this, this goes right back to the Orchestra X findings. I remember in the focus group, anybody who's heard me speak or followed my work has probably heard this story, but it's just so spot on for this part of this topic. Um, you know, so we'd heard all the feedback. Your website reads like inside baseball. I don't know what to wear. Parking, frustrating, blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. And then we get to the point where we are talking about program notes and somebody uh, like wakes up and is like, oh my gosh, Rachmaninoff's second symphony should have never happened. And I was like, uh, tell me more. And they were, and somebody else chimes in. They're like, that's right. His first was a disaster. And wow, it took so much gumption. He waited 20 years before writing his second. Like, so, like the, suddenly the focus group just totally comes alive talking about the story behind Rachmaninoff's second symphony. And they were like, somebody finally goes, whoever wrote those program notes should have written them all. <laughs> Same person did write them all. Um, but it was just, but the more I probed and really dug into this, that's what it was. It was the story about his life. And like, he, you know, he thought the first symphony might've been a failure and, but you know, blah, blah, blah. So that's what they cared about. And that's what they remembered so much so that they could complain about parking. They could complain about not knowing what to wear. They, 
you know, felt intimidated by the words on the website, but, and then same thing in the program notes, they literally said the program notes sound like a wine description until we got to this piece. And they were like, oh man, Rachmaninoff's so cool, you know? So I'm like, okay. So the storytelling, as you said, I just, it just, it's what resonates. Well, now, now they have another association when they see Rachmaninoff. Now they know who that is instead of, oh, he had some nice music. Like, oh, he was a person with a personality. And now I can hear that in the music. It's not just pretty background noise in a, in a movie. Right. Yeah. Nobody's talking about his exposition. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm really salty today. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, but no, but really like double exposition is not something any program note needs to talk about unless you explain it right yeah. after. And I want to send people to your, to your blog and your podcast, um, you know, plug whatever you plug, whatever you'd like, please. <laughs> Ooh, thank you. It's AubreyBergauer.com. That's how you get to the blog. That's how you get to the podcast. And at Aubrey Bergauer on social media, I'm most active on LinkedIn as well as Instagram at Aubrey Bergauer. So any of those places, I would love to see you all there and connect with you. Well, Aubrey, thanks so much. Thanks so much for being here. Like I said earlier, thanks so much for your for your work and and for your time just today. But but everything you've been doing again opening up those doors so that other people are feeling more and more comfortable to talk about this and question the norms that we've just taken, taken for granted for so long. You're very welcome. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me.